could be forgiven for not knowing who Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is. But this cartoon character from the 1920s plays a surprisingly important role in modern copyright law. Oswald was a cartoon character created by Walt Disney, who was then in his mid-20s. And the character of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit actually gave Walt Disney his initial taste of success. And he was able to enjoy it for a few years before the man who helped him achieve that success, a man named Charles Mintz of Universal Studios, betrayed him and ended up stealing away a great deal of his staff and the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. As a direct result of this betrayal, in his late 20s, Disney decided that he would never work for anyone ever again, and he would set things up so that he could never again be betrayed and have his work taken from him. And so post-betrayal, and with a much smaller team than before, Walt Disney invented the character of Mickey Mouse, who featured in the animated short Steamboat Willie, which today is famous for being somewhat ridiculous and also quite racist. And Steamboat Willie earned him back his success and notoriety and launched him on the trajectory that would take him to where he ended up later in life. Now, the U.S. copyright law that was originally put into place in the U.S. in 1790 gave owners of copyrighted material protection from theft for 28 years. It was actually 14 years with the possibility of a 14-year extension. In 1831, this protection was extended to 42 years, and in 1909, it was extended once more to 56 years. Under the law that was in place at the time that Mickey Mouse was created, his copyright should have legally run out after 56 years, which would have made him available for public use in the public domain in the year 1984. This obviously would have been wildly inconvenient for Disney, as they were raking in billions of dollars a year in annual revenue, and a great deal of this money directly attributable to Mickey Mouse and the rest of the Mickey gang. Consequently, Disney began lobbying Congress pretty hardcore to extend the copyright law's protection duration to ensure that their prized intellectual property including Mickey Mouse and Pluto and Minnie Mouse, wasn't taken from them and given to the public, which would allow anyone to use it and profit from their derivative work. In the year 1976, just eight years before Mickey would be in the public commons, available to rework and remix and revamp and profit from by anybody who might choose to do so, Congress revamped the U.S. copyright system to conform it more closely with European standards. And this increased copyright protections to a maximum of 75 years, and at the same time pushed all works that were created before 1922 into the public domain immediately. This extended Mickey's protections, copyright-wise, until the year 2003. Disney started lobbying again in the mid-90s, spending a great deal of money on congressional campaigns. They dodged and concealed the fact that they were spending all of this money on the very people who would decide what happened to copyright law moving forward. And they managed to avoid any massive scandal, which allowed them to continue their lobbying. And in 1997, Congress passed the Copyright Term Extension Act, which extended copyright from 75 all the way up to 95 years. So when this newest act took effect in 1998, Mickey's copyright was extended to the year 2023, which is where it stands today. Now, it's understandable why the Disney company would 
like to keep one of their most valuable assets, arguably one of the most valuable intellectual property assets in the world, as they have something like a 97% recognition rate above that of Santa Claus, and this is all around the world. And so something that recognizable is valuable. And so it makes sense that they wouldn't want to give up those billions of dollars a year that they make off of Mickey Mouse. But it is worth mentioning that a large number of Disney's works, their different movies and other properties, have been based on characters and stories from within the public domain. That is, works that have lapsed copyrights. So Disney didn't have to pay royalty payments to anyone when they remixed and reworked characters like Aladdin and Snow White and dozens of other characters that they have used and remixed for their audiences. And this is what I want to talk about today. Copyright and more specifically the general intellectual property rights of creators, but also the concept of fair use and the public domain and the benefits of having a rich cultural well of creative works to draw from and what the conflict between these priorities can mean for people who make things for a living and those of us who consume them on the other end. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners, people like you. If you go to letsknowthings.com, scroll down a little bit, you will see a bunch of different ways that you can contribute to the show, making one-time contributions of $1, $3, or $10, or whatever makes sense. Or you can also set up a monthly contribution if you care to. You can also leave a review on iTunes, share it with a friend, subscribe. Numerous different ways that you can help support the show. A huge thanks to everyone who has already done this, and a great big thanks in advance if you are planning on doing so at some point in the future. Let's Note Things is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is my hosting company of choice that I use for all of my online activities. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT for Let's Note Things, LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their already excellent prices. If you have any kind of blogging or portfolio or business website project in mind, this is a great opportunity to get said services at a substantial discount. HostGator.com slash LKT. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. Check out AudibleTrial.com slash LKT to receive a free month of Audible, along with a free audiobook of your choice. Stay tuned till the end of this episode for a book recommendation, something that you can spend that audiobook credit on if you care to, or just something that is worth reading if you are looking for something to add to your reading pile. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today, that I want to start this conversation from, is from the website inverse.com, and it's entitled, Beats, Airbnb, and Flipboard Lifted Their Logos from the Same 1989 Design Book. And if you look at the examples that are given in this post and take a look around and do some further research, you'll find that it's not just these companies, but a bunch of different companies that have done this. Many, many companies out there in the world today have logos that look like direct photocopies, essentially, of logos that were developed decades ago. And I think where many of us, where our minds go immediately when hearing something like this, is that we start to think, well, these designers clearly phoned it in. They, they ripped off these old designs and just hoped that they wouldn't get caught. They pocketed these hundreds of thousands of dollars that sometimes go into the designs of these logos, sometimes more than that and just rifled through an old design book that they hoped nobody else would have or nobody else would pay close attention to, and maybe made a few adjustments to a certain curve here, a certain color there. But otherwise, they brazenly ripped off these old designs. And in some cases, I think this is no doubt what happened. 
I think there are people with questionable ethics out there. I think there are people who will do everything that they can to profit and just hope that they get away with it long enough so that when they get caught, it doesn't matter. In a lot of these cases, though, it could be argued that something else was going on. That rather than it being a case of infringement, that it's instead more a case of inspiration. That these designers who designed, say, the logo for Medium, or the logo for Hootsuite, or the logo for Beats headphones, they were not intentionally directly ripping something off, but were instead inspired by the same sorts of things that were floating throughout the cultural ether, or found a pleasing design, a pleasing layout that somebody else in the past had also found, something quite similar or almost exactly the same. These things do tend to happen, and they happen for very logical reasons, actually. But rather than talking about these reasons, typically we jump straight to the idea of infringement, of copying, of ripping off something. And that discussion leads us straight to a discussion of copyright law, most typically. And copyright is one of those fuzzy terms that a lot of us use, I think, a whole lot. It comes up in conversation. But the majority of us, I think, don't have a very solid grasp of what it actually means, what we're actually talking about when we talk about copyright. A copyright grants exclusive right to the creator of an original work to use and to profit from their creation. And typically, this is only for a limited amount of time, as was mentioned in the intro in the case of Mickey Mouse. This limited amount of time can ebb and flow, depending on the laws of the land. But importantly, a copyright is something that grants protection for a work, and not for an idea. And that is something that we very often mistake and misuse. We misuse this term to apply it to ideas rather than to works, and that is not the case. To quote from the actual copyright law, quote, in no case does copyright protection for an original work of authorship extend to any idea, procedure, process, system, method of operation, concept, principle, or discovery, regardless of the form in which it is described, explained, illustrated, or embodied in such work. And what that means, to, to use a wonderful example from the website bitlaw.com, if a scientist were to invent a process for achieving cold fusion, which would be really badass, by the way, her description of that process would be protected by copyright, the description of it. And if she wrote a paper about that process, that paper would also be protected from anyone else copying and profiting from it. But other people could then replicate the process because the idea, that means of achieving cold fusion, is not protected by copyright law. That protection, the protection for a process or a discovery or an invention, can only be achieved by submitting the process with a bunch of details and notes and schematics and so on for a patent. And acquiring a patent can take a great deal of time, energy, and money, and perhaps rightfully so because that then is granting protections to somebody for a process or a discovery or an invention, which could be fundamental. And so granting patents willy-nilly could result in people essentially taking ownership of something very fundamental to the world or to science or to nature or to something else. So copyrights apply to works, not ideas. For an idea to be protected, it has to have a patent attached to it. Copyrights are also considered to be a form of intellectual property, and as such can have multiple shareholders, the same as most other types of asset. In many cases, the rights holders have a say in how their copyrighted work is reproduced, sold, uh, riffed on and remixed, and how they, the rights holders, are attributed when their work is reproduced, what kind of credit they get for owning it. It's also important to note that a copyright in one part of the world doesn't necessarily apply to any other part of the world, though sometimes 
international copyright agreements allow for them to be wider spread and acknowledged and respected in more places. Copyrights typically exist for the duration of the life of the creator, plus somewhere around 50 to 100 years, somewhere thereabouts, depending on where you happen to live in the world. As I mentioned in the intro, this duration does change. Interestingly, in the U.S. at least, one of the arguments for this change, for the extension in the U.S. to our copyright law, has been that copyright laws were originally intended to provide for two generations of descendants from the creator of the original work. And so if you create something that brings in a great deal of money, the intention of copyright law was to ensure that two generations of your descendants would continue to profit from it in the same way that you did. The argument then goes that because lifespans have dramatically increased, so too must copyright law increase in scope so that those two generations can continue to be covered by it. This is, of course, a much debated topic, and some copyright experts actually call this extension of the duration of copyright nothing more than, quote, corporate welfare. When a work retains copyright protection, it continues to earn the shareholders' profits for longer, which, of course, is then beneficial to the shareholders of that copyright. And so Disney continues to profit a great deal because they continue to own the exclusive right to profit from Mickey Mouse. But what happens when a copyright expires? What happens when a work enters the public domain and is no longer protected by copyright? Consider the case of Sherlock Holmes, a character that was written about by the author, Arthur Conan Doyle. And all of these fictional works, which were owned by Arthur Conan Doyle during his lifetime, but which are now owned by the Arthur Conan Doyle estate, the shareholders that own those copyrights to those works, they have traditionally been the entities that have profited from any use of Sherlock Holmes, from any reproduction of the original books, from any use of the character in any other media. But the character of Sherlock Holmes has recently largely entered the public domain. And I say largely because the original 50 stories about Holmes are quite clearly in the U.S. in the public domain, having been published before 1923. Which, if you remember, when they extended the copyright law most recently, they also decided that everything from 1922 backward would immediately enter the public domain. And so Sherlock Holmes, those original 50 stories, are squarely in the public domain. But there were 10 stories written later, after that date, about the detective's retirement which involve an older version of the character. And these stories have a status that is somewhat less clear. And so the consequence of this is that now anyone in the U.S. and in other places where the copyright has lapsed on the Sherlock Holmes stories can write and even profit from stories that include the detective and other characters in his fictional world, as written by Arthur Conan Doyle. It also means that TV shows, movies, fanfic ebooks, and other works that borrow from this world or depict Sherlock Holmes in any way needn't pay royalties to the Arthur Conan Doyle estate. So, shows, TV shows like Sherlock and Elementary, and movies like the Sherlock Holmes movie starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law have one less payout to make from their profits every time they produce something. This also means that ever since a U.S. court case on the matter decreed that, yes, indeed, the copyright on Sherlock Holmes has lapsed, there are a great deal more Sherlock Holmes books on the market. And many of them are ebooks that you can find on Amazon and elsewhere that are essentially free because these are existing works that now anybody can profit from simply by republishing them. It's worth noting that the makers of the movie Mr. Holmes were sued by the estate of Arthur Conan Doyle because they produced a film 
that depicted an older, retired Sherlock Holmes, who was a character that featured in those latter ten books that were written by Doyle. And he is a creation, a version of the character that is still protected by copyright. And so that's what would happen if these previous, these earlier 50 books were still protected. If somebody tried to use the character, they would have to pay out to that estate or risk being sued by them. Now that in mind, it is notable that if you look at the availability of books on Amazon, you will see a large number of works from the years in which copyright has lapsed and far fewer from after that milestone. In a research paper written by Paul Heald in 2013, entitled, How Copyright Keeps Works Disappeared, we see that Amazon actually has more books for sale from the 1880s than from the 1980s. Not because more books were written a century ago, but because copyright laws have kept multiple editions and derivative works from being sold, diminishing access and limiting competition in a lot of ways. This conflict between creators of works who wish to profit from those works and the general public who benefit in many different ways when they are able to work with and add to existing works without the possibility of being sued or having to make payments to intellectual property shareholders is particularly interesting to me as someone who both creates original works and benefits from a rich media ecosystem. Of course, it could be argued that everyone who creates anything is in the same boat as me on this. We are all informed and influenced by our societies in many different ways, and by other people and by the countless subconscious and conscious exposures to ideas and plots and character traits and turns of phrase that we're exposed to pretty much all the time. Sometimes we borrow quite consciously. Pablo Picasso is often quoted as having said that good artists copy, great artists steal. This is thought to have been a response to the more complete quote by T.S. Eliot, published in one of his works in 1920, which itself was a response to a quote by W.H. Davenport Adams from an interview in 1892. But the Eliot quote, I think, is my favorite, as it does add more context to the idea. And that one goes like this, quote, Immature poets imitate, mature poets steal, bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better, or at least something different. The good poet welds his theft into a whole of feeling which is unique, utterly different from that which it was torn. The bad poet throws it into something which has no cohesion. A good poet will usually borrow from authors remote in time, or alien in language, or diverse in interest. I love that. This context is so vital, and it expresses several things that I think are often missing from this conversation when we focus on just the shorter, more concise version, often evoked by Pablo Picasso and other people that have quoted him since. First, it mentions that in borrowing or even stealing, one is still ideally adding something new to what they've experienced, creating something truly original as a result of that theft or that borrowing. Second, it notes that it is possible to borrow or steal and add something new, and to still make that original thing worse. To not improve upon it, but to actually worsen it. A lot of the revamps and remixes and riffs in any industry, I would argue, do nothing to improve upon anything, and exist not because they're better, but simply because they're new, so that artist can put their own mark on something traditional, for instance. And because we have so many distribution channels that are hungry for content, we don't always particularly care 
whether something that is a remix or a revamp or a reinterpretation is actually good, we are still willing to put it out there because we need to feed that desire to consume on the other end of these distribution channels. And so whether or not it's actually a good reinterpretation or a good revision of an existing work, whether or not the quality of the end result of someone borrowing or stealing from the past or somebody different is actually high quality, we still tend to share it. And third, this statement recognizes that good creators borrow from authors remote in time or alien in language or diverse in interest, which means that these creators serve as bridges between time periods and belief structures, between industries, between different focuses, and even between cultures and individuals. To steal, then, in this context, means to take something that is common to someone, somewhere, and bring it elsewhere, to a place where it's not common, to where it is exotic and unfamiliar and challenging. And that changes the conversation and the perspective for those who are on the receiving end of this thing, that somewhere is common, but to them is remarkable and strange and new and maybe even unsettling. I would argue then that having more works in the public domain available for common consumption and stealing and borrowing, sharing and revision can actually contribute to this bridging of ideas and of very disparate people. We are more capable of stealing with impunity when the law is on our side. Does this potentially suck for the creators of things who wish to make a living from that original work? Yes, it does, and that is a very valid concern. Or in some cases, it's a valid concern for their descendants or those who have purchased the intellectual rights from the original creator. But is it potentially even more valuable for society as a whole to distribute that value of the value of a work to more people and even increase maybe the overall value as a result of making that original product available to revamp and remix and share and reinterpret in different ways? It's debatable. Arguably, yes. I, I think this would be difficult to quantify, and there are very good arguments to be made to the contrary. But all the same, it is an argument that does make sense to me, just having seen a lot of the value that emerges as a result of things popping into the public domain. And then what happens as a result, the creative frenzy that occurs every time a new whole cloth resource like that is made available to more people with legal impunity. So that is an incredibly short and incomplete discussion of copyright. Along with any discussion of copyright, I think you have to talk also about fair use. And that is fair use with a capital F, capital U. Because it is a legal doctrine that allows for the limited use of copyrighted material without having to get permission from the shareholders of that intellectual property. And so that means, if done correctly, if done under the tenets of fair use, you could conceivably use in a limited way, say, the older version of Sherlock Holmes, or reference the works that he's in, for instance. But you have to be incredibly careful because the rules around fair use are somewhat blurry, and, and they are something that is constantly being reinterpreted and misused in a lot of different ways by people on both sides as well. The entire concept of fair use is vague, and to a certain degree it's something that's asking for abuse and misinterpretation. It is a concept that has allowed the online space in particular to flourish, but it has also caused a massive headache for many media-focused industries and has led to many, many lawsuits and has arguably increased the amount of general blurriness and misunderstanding that surround discussions of copyright in the United States in general. To understand why, consider the case of the Authors Guild versus Google. It's actually formally the Authors Guild Incorporated versus Google Incorporated. 
So allowing for the limited use of copyright content is vitally important, I would argue, when you think about everything that that covers. Without this doctrine or some version of it, things like satire and parody or news reporting or criticism or research or even search engines would be crippled. News commentators wouldn't be able to show you media videos and images that are relevant to the story that they are reporting. They wouldn't even necessarily be able to quote things that they need to quote so that you understand what they're talking about. Movie critics wouldn't be able to show snippets from the film that they're discussing. Or they might be able to if they ask for legal permission from every single copyright holder. But the complexity continues to increase the more you think about how not having this ability to casually use some snippet or piece of a copyrighted work without asking permission would actually look if we, if we didn't have it in place. So in this case, in the Authors Guild Incorporated versus Google Incorporated, search engines and books are the topics that are slamming up against each other. And so this case revolved around the Google Book Search Database. And this database was actually originally created back in 2011, and its creation involved Google essentially scanning millions of books into the database, then using software to convert all of those scanned images of text into searchable text, which they then made available for search, each and every word in all of these millions of books that they were scanning. They were careful to ensure that only public domain books were made available in their entirety, and that copyrighted works could only be accessed in snippets and summaries, much like a card catalog at a library. Except that instead of just being able to search for keywords or book summaries to find a book, you could actually search for the whole text of a book. So you could find something very specific that's buried in chapter 7, you could find out if a book is discussing a topic that you actually care about for the first time in history. You could do that using this software and search millions of books in this way. So this was something that was arguably both very useful, but also very alarming. Yes, it increased the number of people who would be able to search for the information contained in these books, but it also meant that a tech supergiant was potentially illegally, scanning millions of copyrighted works into their servers that they owned, which was understandably alarming to these publishing companies whose entire livelihood depended on controlling access to these works. The Authors Guild of America and the Association of American Publishers both sued Google back in 2005, as a precursor to the main case that I'm discussing here. And in 2005, they cited, quote, massive copyright infringement as their reason for the lawsuit. Google, in return, said that they were protected by fair use. A settlement was proposed and then rejected in 2011. So this was a case that stretched out for many years. In 2013, more arguments were made and then rejected, and the case was sent to the district court to figure out if fair use actually applied in this particular case. The judge at the district court determined that the lawsuit against Google did not make sense, citing, among other rationales, that the creation of this database wouldn't monetarily harm the copyright holders of these books, but it would in fact actually probably help them sell more books. He also said that it would provide, quote, significant public benefits. It advances the progress of the arts and sciences while maintaining respectful consideration for the rights of authors and other creative individuals and without adversely impacting the rights of copyright holders, end quote. This ruling was appealed by the Authors Guild in 2014, but the U.S. Second Circuit Court upheld the ruling in Google's favor, adding that Google's usage was highly transformative in that they displayed snippets and previews of the books only, 
and that these segments do not constitute a significant market substitute for the originals. So nobody's going to go searching on this Google Book database, find the snippet, and then decide, now that I own this snippet of this book, I don't need to buy the whole book. There was another appeal by the Authors Guild in 2015 in which they questioned whether to be transformative, a work must produce, quote, new expression, meaning, or message, end quote, rather than simply presenting a verbatim copy of the original work, though in smaller segments. And whether that the end result of copying may be beneficial can be used to help justify a work's usage under fair use. And so they're basically saying, Google, you haven't changed anything about the book. You have copied us verbatim, word for word. All you've done is provided smaller snippets of this work that we own the copyright to. And does the fact that this database might help us sell more books, does that justify its use under fair use? And so these were good and important questions, frankly, but they were rejected by the court in April of 2016, which consequently left intact the Second Circuit Court decision in Google's favor from the year before. A few quick points about this case. First, although they are called the Authors Guild, they, as a group, do not actually represent the wants or priorities of most authors. As a professional author myself, someone who makes my living off of my books, I recognize that the authors they represent are the more traditional mainstream group that are typically under the umbrella of the big five publishers here in the United States. This doesn't mean that their arguments are any less valid or that they don't represent real people with real concerns. But it is important to note that their ideas and ideals are not shared by all or even most authors. The majority of independent authors who I know and know of have mixed emotions about Google's database, and a whole lot of them think, as I do, that it's actually a net gain and a great boon to the publishing industry, rather than a detriment or burden. Second, I think it's important that these kinds of issues are raised. And even though I may not agree with the Authors Guild in this particular series of cases, I do applaud them for making the case and pushing against a huge and powerful opponent so that we all might better understand what these ideas, what these dictums like fair use actually mean in practice. We have a much better understanding of where the lines are with this sort of thing because of cases like this. And third, the conflict between more traditional publishing entities and tech companies who have taken up a lot of the responsibilities and trappings of publishing companies, but which do not call themselves publishing companies, is an important space to watch. Right now, there is a big debate taking place at Facebook about what their role and responsibilities are in regard to what news they share and with whom, and whether or not their immense influence over what information people receive should change the way they act or self-define. They have been very careful to make sure that they never self-define as a media company, because that would put them in direct conflict with the media companies that populate their site with content. And their relationship with media companies is already a prickly and contentious one, much like the conflict between the Authors Guild and Google. And I do think that this particular debate, this one between Facebook and essentially every journalistic entity in the world, will result in a net positive for everyone as well. But it will absolutely be a tumultuous ride, and it is one that is worth thinking about and paying attention to. The big picture idea when it comes to copyrighted characters like Mickey Mouse and Sherlock Holmes, and when it comes to complete works like the books that are being guarded by the Authors Guild, largely revolve around the idea of access and use. That is to say, under most traditional economic models, the value in a created work is access to that work. A creator, 
of such a work then, be it a book or a piece of artwork or a film or whatever, benefits by granting access to that work in exchange for money or whatever else might be valuable to them. And this can take the shape of a rights holder giving a movie producer the right to use their character in a film and being paid for granting that access. Or on a smaller but broader scale, it can take the shape of a newspaper granting access to an article they've published to a consumer if they buy a newspaper. Modern technologies and modern methods of consumption have largely and fairly handedly upended this more traditional, kind of easier to grok relationship. Now, there are not just a few dozen studios in the world. Everyone with a computer or a smartphone is capable of creating work from scratch or building something new out of existing assets. And these are completely new works, and sometimes they make use of copyrighted material as part of that work, either intentionally or unintentionally. This might mean creating fan artwork by hand of a character from a beloved book series, or it might mean that there's a copyrighted song that happens to be playing in the background of a Snapchat video that you push out into the world. For the news media specifically, the pay-for-a-product-plus-in-print advertising model that was partially demolished by the clicks-and-views model that currently dominates online journalism is itself being demolished by ad blockers and by dissemination systems that, while increasing exposure to their work to more people, also decreases the control these media companies and journalism entities have over their own intellectual property. And what this means in practice is that, yes, more people might be sharing their article via Facebook and Twitter, but the amount of money that a news magazine, for instance, makes per view on this article is steadily decreasing, and their control over where it's published is steadily decreasing. And the availability then of their work is much higher because it was once kept from the eyes of anybody who didn't pay for it. But it's also quite possible for most people to never pay a dime for the news that they consume. And that expectation by consumers has resulted in an impoverished news media ecosystem, which is a state of affairs that has many quite horrible consequences that we're only just now starting to see on a large scale. There are some, of course, who welcome this change, seeing this wider distribution model that doesn't make as much money per click or per view or whatever for the original creator, seeing it as a necessary step to liberate knowledge and intellectual property, freeing it from the grasp of the few so that it might be accessed and enjoyed by the many. There are others who decry this trend as the end of great things, of well-made movies and well-researched, well-written journalism. And they perceive that these high-quality creations are being replaced by somewhat muddy, hit-and-miss, low-grade media of the masses. I personally fall somewhere in the middle, as I tend to do with most things, I think. But in this in particular, I can absolutely see the argument and respect the argument on both sides. There are absolutely benefits to loosening the grip, I think, of certain institutions and to force their hand in a way so that they make their work available in formats they don't control as tightly. Because that's where we consume today. If the movie industry had their way and had no competition, we would all still be buying DVDs and Blu-ray discs instead of streaming movies to our smartphones for far less money and far more conveniently. If the music industry had their way, we would still be buying expensive albums on physical media instead of buying songs for a buck apiece, the songs that we actually want, or streaming music in bulk, which leaves behind ownership in favor of access. If the book publishing industry had its way, we would maybe have ebooks, but they would cost twice as much and wouldn't be released until after the hardcover and paperback editions have been milked for every last cent. 
I think the moves that have been made away from those limitations are largely positive ones. And although the changes are definitely shocking and alarming to some within these industries, and although the fortunes of some have been relegated to different pockets or are found in different areas than before, I'm guessing that those who are capable of evolving with the needs and preferences of consumers will continue to do just fine. That said, I do understand that we live in a system that requires that we make and spend money to subsist and to thrive. The economic incentive to create isn't what drives all of us all of the time, but it is important that creators can pay their rent and can put food on the table. It's important that the distribution systems have a monetary bulwark against low points and accidents and that the technologies can continuously be evolved, something that is much more difficult to do if there's no money available to help. Some of this can happen in the open, in-between spaces, but some of these evolutions will require focused, capitalistic efforts to be done right and to be done rapidly. And so a balance will need to be struck, I think, because although openness and even piracy, I would argue, can be beneficial to creative spaces, we do need a foundation to stand on and a support system for the mechanisms that produce the software, platforms, media, and other key infrastructure that keeps, say, the mainstream publishing industry alive. There's a lot to be said for indies, independent authors and creators of all kinds, and our ability to operate on a shoestring budget. But there are some things we simply can't do as well as the more mainstream, more traditional entities. Things that require massive budgets and bloated bureaucracies even to make happen. I do not prefer to operate within that kind of system, but I recognize its value in establishing a balance and The same is true of the Facebook versus news media divide and the Mickey Mouse style copyright system versus the public domain face-off. Looping back to the original article that stimulated this conversation, I want to talk about one more thing that I mentioned earlier is very seldom discussed, but I, I think a fundamental understanding of what the copyright fair use world looks like was important to have before we tucked into this one. And this is the idea that all of us are influenced by everything all the time, pretty much. And our general inability, or difficulty at least, in recognizing and working this reality into our view of ownership versus access is something that informs our perception of it. In other words, we have myriad, just uncountable influences on everything that we do, everything that we are, the way that we see the world, but also the way that we operate, our opinions, our preferences, and the things that we create. And this reality is something that should shape the discussion that we are having about copyright and about fair use. It's a reality that that could push things in a lot of different directions, and you could argue a lot of things about it, but it's important to understand One concrete example of this, I co-founded a publishing company with a couple of friends back in 2012 called Asymmetrical Press. And shortly thereafter, I designed a logo for it that uses a thick sans serif typeface stacked so that the letters make up roughly a box. And all of it is black except for the A, a scarlet A in the logo. And it's nice and it's simple and it fits with my minimalistic sensibilities, and it was something that fit with the idea of asymmetrical as well, because it was a symmetric shape that was made asymmetric because of the letters on the bottom line not quite extending out as far as the letters on the top two lines. And so it was something that I really enjoyed the look of, and I thought it made sense, and I thought it fit with the name asymmetrical, stemmed from the way that we were approaching business. And so all of these things were ideas that I conceived of Just in my own head, I I have all of the different notes and the evolution of the logo, had a bunch of other designs that I considered. This is the one that made the most sense. And so my business partners and I agreed that this was the one to go with. And then after about a year of working digitally with each other, my business partners and I decided to move to Missoula, Montana to work in person 
to take some time to make sure that we laid a solid groundwork for this new publishing company of ours. And while there, somebody mentioned to me that David Lynch, the director, lived in Missoula. And I I was passingly familiar with his work. I, I knew Dune and I knew Mulholland Drive. I knew his general style, but I didn't know much else about him. So I ended up just looking him up out of curiosity. And what I discovered is that he actually had a production company, a very short-lived one, that as far as I know, its logo was only used once or twice on one or two productions of his. But the production company was called Asymmetrical Productions. And for the logo, he took apart the word asymmetrical and stacked it up in the same way that I did. And he used a very different typeface than I did. But in the two different versions of the logos that he produced, the resemblance was something that could not be ignored. These were still clearly very different logos designed by very different people, and in very different times. The typeface that he used for the first one in particular was very 90s. But it was still something that was so uncanny that I was blown away that these two companies that were operating out of Missoula, Montana, at different time periods with similar names, ended up with such similar logos. And I was actually concerned at a certain point looking at it, because although... I am 99.99% certain that I had never seen that other logo before or even heard of it, that people would wonder if I had copied this thing. I was comforted by the fact that it didn't seem to be something that was used anymore. This old asymmetrical logo was so obscure that it didn't even come up in my initial research when looking up existing companies for the name asymmetrical. And yet there it was once I started looking around. And so I had to wonder was this something that I had seen before and subconsciously took it in and started to utilize elements of it in the designing of the asymmetrical press logo that I designed, thinking it was something completely original? Or is this something that we happen to be exposed to similar ideas and consequently were similarly inspired to use a word like asymmetrical, thinking that it applied to the way that we were doing business or some other meaning that we imbued in the name? Was it something that just any designer would look at that word and trying to be clever the way that designers try to do when designing logos would utilize it in such a way, recognizing the fact that the letters would line up as such and it would have an asymmetric tilt to a typically symmetric shape? It's really difficult to say. And the reason that I say that I'm 99.99% certain that I've never seen this logo before is that I've just seen so many thousands upon thousands of logos. There's a chance that while flipping through a book of logos at some point, I was exposed to it and I just don't remember it consciously. But then there's also a chance that that's not the case, that we just happen to come to similar conclusions. Those logos designed by Airbnb and Flipboard and Beats and so on, they bear a striking resemblance to the logos in that book that was published in 1989. And so is this a case of companies and designers blatantly ripping off old logos and just assuming that they can get away with it? Or is it a case of those designers having been exposed to these logos at some point and that being a concept that then seemingly came to them? out of nowhere, that they put together using their own ingenuity, drawing from the inspiration of these things that they had seen at some point? Or is it that these designers were exposed to similar variables and similar life experiences and similar design sensibilities and similar historic traditions in terms of aesthetics as these other designers who designed the logos in that book from 1989? And as such, they came to similar conclusions, a similar arrangement of the icons and letters involved. It's almost impossible to say, I think, unless somebody comes forward and says, yeah, okay, I did rip that off, which is unlikely. It really is impossible to know from whence this type of inspiration might spring, to trace it back to the origin, because very likely it's not one origin. It's a bunch of different influences that happen very often subconsciously that can lead to such a creation. Consider that throughout human history, we've actually had many documented cases of simultaneous inventions, or what historians and anthropologists sometimes refer to as 
multiple discoveries around the world. And what this essentially means is that these were tools like spears and arrowheads or the development of the usage of fire and metallurgy and carts and wagons, the invention of social norms and government structures and the discovery of fundamental sciences and the development of evolutionary models, medical breakthroughs, the invention of the airplane and the motorcycle and mass media and the printing press. These are things that happened in different places around the world near simultaneously. And in many cases, the inventors or discoverers or researchers came to these conclusions in isolation from one another. They developed the same technologies around the same time, in some cases within days of each other, when we have the, the documents to show that, at least we can, we can tell that that was the case. Not because they were communicating with each other or ripping one another off, but because they had similar influences in their lives that led them to make this new jump, to have this idea, to create this new thing. Suddenly the tools were available that allowed them to do it, or other discoveries had been made that they had learned about, which then led them to make that next logical jump. There are myriad different reasons that this can happen, but we know that it can happen, and I have no reason to think that any type of development or creation would be any different. And I should note that I don't personally believe that this is the consequence of some kind of mental link between humans, that we're all tapping into some sort of psychic pool of inspiration and knowledge. This is the belief of some who see this data, and such interpretations have led to the conclusion that all inventions, all ideas, are therefore the collective property of all humans, as we have all contributed to them in some way. That we can all, every single individual, claim all of human development as our own birthright. I don't believe that, I see no reason to believe that, but I do think that invention whether we're talking about the invention of the steam engine or the development of a cartoon character or the design of a particularly clever and pleasing logo is a more complicated beast than we often infer. The creative process is not an isolated experience, even though it may seem to be. And even in the cases where a particularly brilliant individual has sequestered themselves for long periods of time, emerging from the mountain, as it were, with something powerful and groundbreaking in their hands, that person was still, up until that point, influenced by their culture, by the ideas of those around them, by historical context, by previous inventions, by previous experiences, which is to say that none of us truly operate in isolation. Does that mean that everything we each create should be the possession of the masses? I would argue no, that that doesn't make sense, at least in terms of how we currently operate economically and socially. Does it mean that the creation of such things is complex and often misunderstood, and that the regulation of these inventions then is also quite complex and not as simple as we might like it to be for legal purposes? Yes, I, I do believe that that is the case. Particularly right now, in this moment in history, we are, all of us, exposed to more ideas, more perspectives, more inventions and knowledge about what's happening now and what happened before than any human has had at any point in history. And this, hopefully, will continue to be the case. As we are all exposed to more, that means everything we do, everything we produce, probably also has more influences behind it. These are still very much our ideas and our inventions, the knowledge and ideas of our species being filtered through our unique perspective. But recognizing that such things don't really ever happen in a vacuum is integral to the discussion that we're having. A genius operating in solitude would be unlikely to come up with the design of a smartphone without having first been exposed to all the technologies that make up such a device, and all the devices, the original telephone included, that were the evolutionary ancestors of it. This is similar, I suppose, to saying that we are all taller for standing on the shoulders of giants. And in a lot of ways it could be said that we are actually born perched atop those shoulders, 
And that means that we are, most of us, more likely to assume that we are totally just super tall. Because so many of us do grow up in a well-informed, culturally rich future and never have to see the ground that exists somewhere down there so far below. Recognizing this is important. It's important perspective for any type of conversation that revolves around creation and ownership and so on. Much of what makes us us is derivative of these different influences throughout history and our contemporaries as well. And so whether the conversation that we're having is about copyright and fair use or about economics and and distribution of wealth, I think this is an important thing to remember. I don't think it will sway everyone the same direction, but I do think that it makes the conversation a little bit richer and a little bit more true to what's actually happening. A great big thanks to everybody who has been contributing to the show. Thank you so much for the monetary contributions, the non-monetary contributions. If you'd like to figure out the best way for you to contribute, if you're feeling keen to do so, you can go to letsnotethings.com and there you can very easily donate some cash or set up a monthly contribution. You can also go to iTunes and leave a review for the show. You can recommend it to your friends, you can post about it on your social network or write about it on your blog. All of these things are very much appreciated. You guys kick all kinds of butt, and I love you for that. This episode is brought to you by HostGator. If you are thinking of starting a blog or a photo portfolio or a website for your business, your small business, or your great big business... Whatever the scale or type of your project, chances are HostGator has a great solution for you. They have plans that start from a couple bucks all the way up to the super ultra pro level things, but all of them will be substantially cheaper if you go to hostgator.com slash LKT. Take a look at what they've got. If it fits what you have in mind, that helps support the show, but it's also something that will help you get to where you want to be and save some cash in doing so. The show is also brought to you by Audible. I spend a great deal of my time listening to audiobooks these days because they are like great, big, long podcasts, and we all love podcasts. I've been primarily listening to a great deal of nonfiction through Audible, but I like to keep my recommendations balanced. And so today I would like to recommend a piece of fiction written by the author Harry Turtledove, who is renowned for his alternative history fiction writings, which essentially means that he is incredibly knowledgeable about history, and he takes all of the characters and events as they happened, and then turns them on their head by changing one thing. If you've never heard of him before, never read any of his work, I recommend starting with a book called Guns of the South, which essentially posits what would happen if Confederate troops during the U.S. Civil War got their hands on modern AK-47s. I will leave it to your imagination as to what that actually might look like and what people in contemporary Civil War era United States might think about getting their hands on such weapons. And I will not give away how it actually occurs, but it's a very compelling story. It has a series of twists, things that you might not expect, as a lot of his books tend to, and it has excellent characters as well. Everything by Harry Turtledove tends to be a very compelling and fun read. If you enjoy that one, you might also check out the book Ruled Britannia, which is a tale about what might have happened if the Spanish Armada was not defeated by the British and Shakespeare became a revolutionary in occupied England. And so Guns of the South, Ruled Britannia, both excellent books. Two books that you can snag from your local library, your local indie bookstore, get on your Kindle, your Kobo, whatever your reading device of choice happens to be, or if you want to go paperback, also awesome. But you can also snag those books, one or the other, for free off Audible if you care to. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you'll get a free month of Audible, but you will also get a free audiobook from their collection of your choice audibletrial.com slash LKT. 
for immense alternate history fiction listening satisfaction. If you'd like to check out the show notes for this episode or for every episode, you can go to letsknowthings.com. Also there, you can subscribe to the weekly Let's Know Things newsletter, which goes out every Monday and includes a selection of hand-curated links to interesting things that I think you should read for the week. You can find Let's Know Things on Instagram and Twitter at Let's Know Things, and you can find me, Colin Wright, pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.